Our sermon is entitled, In the Breaking of the Bread. In the Breaking of the Bread. Look at verse 21 of Luke 24. But we were hoping, but we were hoping. Odd words that leapt from the text when I read the Gospel of Luke this week. Words on the lips of two of the disciples on the road home to Emmaus. But, but we, were, we were hoping. We utter those words too, don't we? When the outcome is not what we sought, when we're left bewildered and beaten down by life, when the medical tests come back positive with bad news, but we were hoping the diagnosis was wrong. When our son or daughter is placed in harm's way in the military, but, but we, were, we were hoping he would be assigned stateside. When someone walks out of our life unwilling to reconcile, unwilling to forgive us, but, but I, was, I was really hoping we could work this out. The disciples that day on the road to Emmaus were hoping. Hoping. Look at verse 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. So they're traveling home on the first day after the Sabbath had passed when they could travel. About a two-hour walk, if you walk briskly. And notice a spe specific time. That very day, turn back to Luke 24, 1. But on the first day of the week, all of the events in Luke 24 happen on the very day of the resurrection. On the first day following the Sabbath. On the first day of the week, now on that very day, the day of the resurrection, they've given up and they're going home. On this day, all sorts of strange things have happened. The disciples are still clueless as to what has actually taken place. The tomb has been reported empty, but those are taken as old wives' tales in the midst of the confusion and the crucifixion, the burial and the disturbed tomb. The two disciples set off back home. They've given up. They've lost their hope. They're headed to Emmaus. In fact, their departure, the breaking up of the church, even on the day of the resurrection, their heading home might be a sign that the community of Christ is crumbling. Their Messiah has been crucified. They've given up. They're, they're going home. Look at verse 14. And they were conversing with each other about all the things that had taken place. Those of us who are old enough, do you remember where you were on 9-11? Our worlds were shocked, rattled, changed. You didn't have a single conversation on 9-11 that wasn't about 9-11, now did you? 
The images were seared in our minds. The fire, the smoke, the catastrophe, the uncertainty, the emptiness, the confusion. Our world was no longer safe and no one really knew what to do about it. The churches gathered and prayed and talked. Our very bedrock was broken. So it was for these disciples on Resurrection Sunday. They were following Jesus. They had committed themselves to this Messiah. They had seen his wonderful miracles. And then that horrid image of him being crucified and the confusion, the report about the missing body. How could you not know? How could you not talk about it if your master was crucified? Even his body now, it seemed the reports were saying, had been disrespected. Look at verse 15. And it came about while they were still conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What were those words that you were exchanging with one another as you were walking? And they stood still, looking sad. Verse 16, their eyes were seized, is another translation. It's a passive tense which tells us it was acted upon them. God prevented them at first from seeing who Jesus was. Their eyes were seized. Oh, they could see, but they couldn't understand that that was their rabbi who had been crucified. He was now resurrected. Their blindness is divinely imposed for the moment. The disciples who had seen the crucifixion of their hope were headed home to Emmaus. They were disappointed. They were defeated. They were discouraged. They were depressed. When Jesus speaks to them, they are looking sad because of the death of their Messiah. A stranger approaches where on earth has he been? What world is he from? How can he not know? Everybody in Jerusalem knows what's happening. How can he say, what are you talking about? Jesus asked as if he didn't already know. Hey, back there when you, you all were talking, what, what were you discussing? They stop in their tracks, verse 17. Their sadness overcomes them with a question. Then one of them, verse 18, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? Man, what world have you been living in? Where have you been? Weren't you there for the Passover? Have you no idea, sir, what's taking place? Could someone have visited New York City on 9-11, maybe a, an outing, and be leaving the city and not know the city had been attacked? Can you imagine someone leaving New York City on 9-11 and saying, hey, what are they talking about? What's going on here? What's that billow of smoke and all the, the sirens? 
That would have been the equivalent. Man, where have you been? Didn't you hear the crowd shout, crucify him, crucify him? Didn't you see the Romans get involved? Didn't you see the marching army? Didn't you see Pilate there? Man, didn't you see the parade of crucifixion? Weren't you there at the cross? When Jesus says, hey, what's going on here? It might as well have been someone visiting New York saying, I, don't, I didn't hear about anything happening. What took place? Cleopas, the one name, seems to say, if you don't know what's going on here, fellow, you're the only guy in Jerusalem who didn't get it. Didn't you see the one who was supposed to be our Messiah, the rabbi Jesus, crucified? No, Jesus says, verse 19, I, I don't know what's going on here. Verse 20, are you not aware of the things about Jesus and Nazarene, who is a prophet Mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. Have you ever reflected on the oddity of this passage? Cleopas is telling Jesus the story of Jesus. Man, don't you know? There was this rabbi. He spoke with authority like no one had ever spoken before. Don't you know he was powerful in his miracles? Where have you been? Let me tell you about the one we thought was going to lead us to freedom. Cleopas is so disappointed because Rabbi Jesus turned out to be nothing more in his mind than a prophet that he thought was the Messiah who fell short in the end. How many times had Israel rejected, mistreated, and murdered her prophets? And even though Jesus could work the works of Elijah, and even if his deeds were the deeds of Moses, he had been rejected. He's rejected. They're devastated. Verse 21. Man, we were, we, were, we were really hoping that this was the one. We, we thought he was the one to redeem Israel. Behind this image is another image with which we're familiar as students of the Old Testament. The image of Exodus, the image of Passover, these two disciples are headed back to their home in Emmaus, probably Cleopas and probably his wife who bears the name we think Mary. Maybe it's Cleopas and Mary. Maybe it's a husband and wife. I think it was Cleopas and Mary. They were living out the story of the Exodus God had been present with Jesus like he was with Moses in his miracles, and God had been present with him in his words. Look at verse 19. He was powerful. He was mighty in word and deed. He didn't just talk powerfully. He acted powerfully. And just as Israel had been redeemed from slavery in Egypt in the first Exodus, they were hoping that through Jesus, God would purchase their freedom again. Israel free, they had hoped 
liberated from pagan domination, free from Rome, free to serve God in peace and in holiness. And that's why the crucifixion doesn't make any sense. It wasn't only that their leader was dead and gone and that was bad enough. It was more than this. Jesus had been the one to redeem Israel, to set her free. His crucifixion was the complete and final devastation of all the hopes they had had that he was the long-awaited Messiah. The cross. The cross is where people end up who think they're Messiah who aren't the Messiah. The cross is where people end up who fail in their political revolutions. And Jesus had failed in the political revolution to set them free from Rome. And so they had seen him crucified. They, they knew what the crucifixion meant. It was over. Head home to Emmaus. Or at least they thought they knew what the crucifixion meant. For now, it seemed as if God had not forgiven Israel's sins, and the pagans were still in power. They were traveling on a path to freedom, and it turned out to be a cul-de-sac. I did that this week. I got on the road. I was sure it was going to head west and take me back home, and I went about a quarter of a mile, cul-de-sac. That's what they thought. This is our journey with the Messiah dead end. And how could they have been so wrong about Jesus? They had not only heard the miracles, why Cleopas and Mary had seen a miracle themselves or two. His words were so powerful. He spoke as if he were speaking for God. No, he spoke as if he was God. And if you couldn't trust Jesus to set you free, then how could they ever trust a would-be, could-be Messiah again? And now all the commotion and rumor about, rumors about angels and an empty tomb, it was just a confusing icing on the cake of crucifixion. But, but we, were, we were hoping You've been there before, disappointed. I've been there before. It sounds a whole lot like Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. Listen as I read Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water books, my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. My tears have been my food day and night while they are saying to me all day long, where is your God? But then he says, hope Hoping God, I'll praise him again. But we were hoping, says the psalmist. The psalmist is feeling like God is so far away. He's so far away from the presence of the Almighty. Where is your God? The crowds are saying to him. Verse 9 of the psalm says, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And they're telling him all day long, where is your God? He has failed to show up. Verse 11, then he says again, I hope in God. I hope to praise him again. It sounds like Cleopas, but we were, we were hoping. 
And really, it goes into Psalm 43. It continues, have you rejected me? He asked, verse 2. He's in despair, 43, 5. In verse 5, he says again, hope in God. I will praise him, the help of my countenance of my God. But we were, we were, we were hoping that he was the one. They go on in verse 22 to tell Jesus how the women came to the tomb and they reported the body was not there and about the angels, but they checked it out and they didn't see him. In verse 25, Jesus says to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? You see, they had been hoping in the wrong direction. They were hoping that God would redeem Israel from suffering, and God's plan was to redeem Israel through suffering, through the suffering of the Christ. And beginning, he says, verse 27, with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Don't think for a moment that this was proof testing. Can you imagine being there for two hours that walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus and having Jesus explain to you from Genesis to Chronicles, that's the last book in the Hebrew Bible, the prophets come earlier, explain to you how all of that was about him and about his need to suffer and his need to rise again. And don't you see that the cross was the throne? And Don't you see what God is doing, that I'm the real Lamb of God, that I'm the suffering servant of Isaiah, could you imagine to discover that the execution of this rabbi was not the disproof of his being the Messiah, but rather the confirmation and the climax the cross is of his Messiahship? Suppose for a moment that you could retell the story in a way that the cross was not an example of the triumph of paganism over God's people, but actually God's final blow to defeat the evil one. Jesus told the story in a way they never could have imagined it or envisioned it before. Suppose for a moment that the cross was a way that sins were forgiven and the kingdom of God came into the fullness of humanity. As they listened to Jesus for two hours teaching the old text. Their hearts were slowly unfolding, unfolding the truth of God, a truth that the cross was, in fact, not a defeat of God, but God's plan all along, and that God was saving his people, and he was beginning a new creation which included a resurrection. Can you imagine having that two-hour walk with Jesus as he tells you from the prophets and the writings who he is? After two hours of listening to this stranger teach them the Old Testament with new glasses, with new vision, opening up their eyes, it's getting late. And Jesus pretends as if he needs to head on down the road Walks by their house. I've got further to go. He heads on down the road. And they say to him, man, it's getting late. 
It's already late. You need to stay with us. Won't you be our guest tonight? Look at verse 30. And it came about when he had reclined at the table with them. He took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. A strange thing takes place. Can you imagine inviting me into your home for a meal and all of a sudden I get up and start putting ice in the glasses and pouring the tea and kind of I become the host and you become the guest? They invite Jesus into their home and he switches roles with them. Notice the verbals here in the text. He took the bread. He says the blessing. He breaks the bread and he gives the bread. He took He gave thanks, he broke, and he handed out or gave out the bread. Jesus takes charge of the meal. Those verbs, those clues should ring true in your ears for you've just seen them in Luke 22 when in the upper room Jesus takes the bread and he gives thanks and he breaks the bread and he passes out the bread to the disciples and tells them, this is my body broken for you and this is my blood spilt for you. Cleopas and Mary, who had not been in the open room, are having their own Lord's Supper in this passage. Look at verse 31. And their eyes were opened And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. All of a sudden, with the breaking of the bread, their eyes are opened, and they get it that Jesus has been resurrected, and the women were telling the truth that the angels had said he was alive, and the crucifixion was not a tragic defeat, but rather it was the victory of God. Did the cross have been a throne all alone? Look at verse 35. They do an odd thing. They're tired. They tell Jesus, it's too late. You need to stay with us. But when their, their eyes were open, God had blinded them, and now God has opened their eyes in the breaking of the bread. Now that their eyes are open, they head back to Jerusalem that very night. I imagine it wasn't a walk. You ever walk seven or eight miles and think you couldn't turn around and go back? They run back. And when they run back, they run to the disciples. And when they start to tell the disciples, hey, you guys aren't going to believe this. We were on the road and there was this stranger and he asked us what we were talking about. And then we couldn't see. But then when he broke the bread, our eyes were clear. And now you need to know this is of God and he is God. And before they can say any of that, they say, hey, guys, he's alive. He appeared to Simon Peter. And after they hear the story about Peter's witness of the resurrected Jesus, look, verse 35. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Now I'm going to take you on a journey you've probably never imagined when you read this text. Are you ready? You got your seatbelt on? What is the first meal in the Bible? A moment heavy with significance. 
A woman takes some fruit. She eats it. She gives it to her husband. And Genesis says, their eyes were opened. In fact, if you look not at the Hebrew Old Testament, but the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, the language is so familiar. The verbiage is the same as it is here in Luke 24. It is Cleopas and Mary are the new Adam and Eve. And like Adam and Eve had their eyes opened when they took that bite, so the new Adam and Eve have their eyes opened. And the first Adam and Eve had their eyes open to sin and death. And the new Adam and Eve have their eyes open to life and forgiveness. Forgiveness. It's the same verbiage, Greek to Greek. And their eyes were opened. We have another first meal. The first first meal was the meal of death. The second first meal, as Jesus is the new Adam, is a meal of life. And their eyes were opened. In fact, Cleopas and Mary say, our hearts were strangely warmed when he was talking to us about the Old Testament. Can you imagine for a moment thinking the Messiah is dead? To watch him break the bread and have your eyes open and understand the story of Jesus in a whole new way. To read the prophet Isaiah, the suffering servant, and know that he is the Lamb of God, the one that is silent before his shears. To read the Old Testament in such a way that he is the second Adam, the second Moses, that all the stories point to him. To have your eyes opened when he broke the bread blessed it passed it out that moment God opened their eyes let us pray oh God perhaps you're opening some eyes and hearts this morning some watching with live stream some on television some here in this room maybe at the preaching this word, someone's eyes are opened and they see that indeed Jesus is the true Messiah of God. He is the Holy One of Israel. Maybe they see that they're a sinner and they need a Savior and that through his crucifixion they've already died and through his glorious resurrection, this appearance of the resurrected Christ, they've been made alive forever. That they'll simply make his death their death and his forever life their forever life. Maybe this morning, God, there, there's someone right there who needs to say, I, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I invite Jesus Christ in my heart to be my Lord and my Savior. Today is my day, my Cleopas moment, my Mary moment. I have my life forever changed. To see Jesus differently from this day forward. To know he is a crucified and resurrected Lord. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.